Hello, everyone. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. If you're, uh, if you're new here, welcome. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor. So glad that you are here today. If you're wondering why I'm wearing sunglasses, it's not because I'm a cult leader. Because um, if I was a cult leader, I would also wear like a, man like a full mantle like this. Like, um, no, I actually, uh, I was angle grinding some steel and I got a piece of metal in my eyeball. Uh, and this looks far less uh, disturbing than my eye without glasses. Uh, so. Uh, and light really hurts, so forgive me. And I have to read, I have to read my book for um, for Audible tomorrow and Tuesday. <laughs> so I'm just praying my eye uh, comes back <laughs> before before then. Um, well, man, it's so good to be with all of you. It's the new year. Ian uh, brought in the first. I'm sure it was a quiet Sunday because it was January 1st. But uh, man, if you were not here, listen to the message that he gave. Last week, it's a, a favorite text of mine. Um, it was one that Ian was really excited about, and he did a great job with it. But the king in the cave, uh, dealing with David uh, and the men that uh, gave their, their lives, their loyalty to him. And it's just such a beautiful picture of Jesus in the church. Uh, and I think it's a, a, a message that everyone should hear. So uh, I'm sure many of you were not here last week, so definitely go back and listen to that. Um, you know, every start of a year is a time in which we generally uh, make all sorts of uh, unreasonable um, plans for ourselves that we usually fail at within, uh, within a month. That's why gyms love January, uh, because everyone signs up and then they just count on you paying monthly but not using their equipment. And as I've said before, uh, New Year resolutions uh, usually fail because there are not the appropriate affections behind them to drive any sort of consistency. Uh, and we need right affections if we want consistency in our lives. But what I want to talk with you about at the beginning of this year is something much bigger. Because as I have come back out of a sabbatical and spent essentially six months kind of reacclimating into uh, Door of Hope and figuring out as I had come out of a very uh, significant season of tremendous change in my own life, burnout, loss of my father, all these things kind of brought forth like an existential crisis, if you will. And I want to just begin with a story. When Darcy and I moved back to Portland um, in 2000, and I think it was 2007, uh, that we came uh, to Portland. We went, uh, I came on staff at a church uh, called Solid Rock at the time, it's now called Westside, working under uh, a guy some of you have probably heard of, John Mark Comer and his father, Phil Comer, and I was the worship pastor. And the reason I took that job is because I had been working for two years in California at a very large church called Revival Christian Fellowship in the, in the, the beautiful Inland Empire. If you've ever been to Hemet, California, you know how amazing that is. It might be the worst town in America, but, um, <laughs> but Idlewild's beautiful. Uh, but coming back to Portland, you know, from the heart and the desire was I want to plant a church on the east side. I had been teaching for two years uh, 
and leading worship at this church in California. And so when I came on staff with, uh, at Solid Rock, I told them, I said, I'll work for you for two years, but my heart is to actually go uh, to the place where Darcy and I met. And so many of you don't know our story. Darcy and I met in uh, May of 1996. Uh, I was in a band called Man Ray. We were assigned to this Portland label called Tim Kerr. We were opening for this other band called the Dandy Warhols. And, uh, um, and who the, the lead singer was obsessed with my wife. Uh, and I'll say that from the pulpit, Courtney, if you're ever listening. Uh, and uh, I got the girl, the dandies got the success. Uh, but uh, Darcy and I fell madly in love and she lived right on Hawthorne, um, literally in this amazing brick building, just a few blocks from where Door of Hope was for the first five years, uh, I think around like 18th in, in Hawthorne. And, you know, there was this desire when we both got saved, because I came to faith two years after we got married, and Darcy came to faith two years after that. So we, we weren't Christians when we met. Um, that's why we don't do premarital, because we don't know what to tell you. Um, <laughs> and God, in his graciousness, saved both of us. And then my wife found herself in ministry, a, a pastor's wife, um, six months after becoming a believer. I mean, which is crazy. And this kind of wild journey that brought us back to Portland. And the reason we came back here is because we understood the culture. It's where Darcy grew up. It's where she lived her 20s. She was like the little bohemian new age queen when I met her. Um, who had books like She Runs With Wolves on her coffee table um, and all sorts of crystal therapy stuff. Uh, and, uh, and I was the little wannabe, you know, Northwest rock star. And so for us, like our heart kind of bled for this community, for this culture. And we loved Portland. Uh, and, and this was what kind of birthed the desire. But something more radical had to happen for me to step out in faith and start the church. And that more radical thing was this. I, I remember really struggling working at the church. I just, I'm not, I'm not hardwired. If you live in Beaverton, there's nothing against Beaverton. I'm just not hard, hardwired for the suburbs. And I just, it just, it, it, is, it isn't my people. It's not, it's not what I connect with. And we lived in the city the whole time I worked there. And so I'm like, this just doesn't feel right. But I didn't feel this, the courage to step out and start the church. And I had voices maybe even encouraging me against it because Solid Rock was exploding and, and it needed pastoral care. And it went from 1,900 to 5,500 in less than two years. And so there was a lot of pressure on me to stay put. But I remember very clearly, I took a nap midday. I love five minute power naps. Uh, and, and during a nap, uh, and I think it was in March of, it was March of 2009, I had a vision. And I would say it was more of a vision because I wasn't, I wasn't, a, I wasn't a, like in a dead sleep, but it was a very, very specific thing. I'm not a, I, I always say I'm, I'm charismatic with a seatbelt. I believe in the gifts. I don't use them very often. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not a guy that's like, you know, I get visions and words from the Lord all the time. But this was a very specific, like I had a vision. And the vision was this, that there was a revival happening. And it was happening on Hawthorne. Uh, and, and in the dream, I was actually uh, in front of, of this crowd with a group of pastors. So it wasn't like this grandiose dream about me being the guy. It was me with a, with a group of leaders in the city of Portland, and we were trying to figure out what to do with this unexpected 
crowd that went down Hawthorne as far as the eye could see. And, and, and I woke up from that dream and I felt like the Lord's saying, now's the time. I called Darcy and I said, I'm turning in my resignation at, at Solid Rock tomorrow. And I think it's time for us to just step out in faith. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think they're going to, I don't think they're going to be excited about me leaving. So we need to be prepared for no support. And uh, if it doesn't work out, whatever, I'll become a worship pastor in Texas. But we need to really pray hard that that doesn't happen because my only option at that point was Houston. And I like Texas, Russ, but not Houston. Um, <laughs> I actually would have liked Abilene. <laughs> uh, but I, I just remember this, having this peace. Like we had no plan. You know, most guys that go out and plant churches go through like uh, they, they, get, they get sent through an assessment and they do this whole like, it's like this kind of rigorous testing. There was none of that. I was still a relatively new Christian even. Uh, and so I'm like, I'm like, I just know that this is what we're supposed to do. So I turned in my resignation. It was rough, but my wife had total peace and so did I. We found this house in Northeast and I began talking with a church uh, on 21st and Hawthorne uh, called Hinson Baptist. And Hinson at the time had no lead pastor and they owned two church buildings. And if you guys have gone down by Hinson's the other castle. We're one of the castles, one of many castles on the east side. Uh, another castle at the end, but they also own this church just two blocks off of Hawthorne that used to be an Assemblies of God church and they bought in the 80s. Um, I'm not sure why they bought it. I kind of know, but I'm not going to say. Um, but they used it for offices and there was nobody using this 700 person auditorium. And one of the elders kind of just decided he wanted to help me. And he said, I'm going to talk with the elders and see if I can get you in front of them and let's see if we can get you in this church. Well, we didn't have any place to meet. So I remember living in Northeast and Darcy went on a walk and she came back and she goes, I saw this little church and I think you need to go talk to them because um, it looked like they were getting ready to paint. And I used to be a restoration painter. So um, I walked by it. It was a yoga. It was like a church literally called the little church that had been turned into a community center and a yoga studio. And I walked in and I introduced myself and I could tell that they didn't know what they were doing with painting. It was the, the owner, the couple. And I said, hey, I'll paint this for free for you in exchange for rent. And they said, all right, so May 9th, we launched our first Door of Hope service. And I don't even know how word of mouth got out there because I didn't really prepare for anything. I just told a few people. And that night, 75 young people came to the service, which was already too big for that little church. At the end of four weeks, when our, rent, our free rent was up, Hinson Baptist gave us their church that seated 700 for free for six months. And all of this, no support from the church, went like God just opening door after door after door and just explosive growth and this excitement and this belief. And, and there was a belief, I, I think, across the, the community in that vision that God gave me for a revival in the city. And it's interesting when you have, have a dream like that and it becomes this motivation of like, all I care about, and I think about this, when Door of Hope began, I had no ambition other than I just wanted to tell people about Jesus because he had saved me so radically. I just wanted people to meet Jesus. And that was the one thing that Darcy and I brought with with. with clear vulnerability was an honest love of Jesus and a love of people and a desire to see an awakening in the city. But like all church stories, 
the church grew faster than I was able to handle. Um, it definitely got beyond what my giftings were able to, to deal with. And, and over time, as, as the church grew and it grew and exploded and exploded, and it got to this point where it was, it was, it was like the dream that I had had somehow was erased from my memory. And then it just became a, a, a job in which I was trying to survive often. It's a really interesting thing how ministry can burn us out because we can so quickly lose sight of Jesus uh, as we try to serve him, <laughs> that serving him becomes the focus, not knowing him any longer. And, and, and that's what it felt like. I remember at one point, uh, I think it was right when Russ came on staff, uh, we, were at, we were at five services. I mean, preaching in the same message five times Two times is great because you got a second time to fix what you didn't do right in the first one. Like I would probably cut this intro way down if I was to do it again, but I don't get to do it again. So this is what you get. Um, but by the third, by the fourth one, you're like, I did I say this already? And you're like, you did like three times already. And by the fifth one, you're like, I don't even believe what I'm saying and I don't like people. <laughs> and, that, and that was like how, that's how bad, I remember, I remember me and Tim Mackey getting together and we're like, we got we got to figure this out because I'm dying. He's like, I'm dying too. I'm like, what are we going to do? And we did the, 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 the one, what I would argue is the greatest misstep in Door of Hope's history, but God is sovereign and he works through all of it, was moving to Re Revolution Hall because it was a betrayal of that initial vision of God saying, I want you to start churches in, in church buildings that are essentially empty around the city of Portland, rather than focusing on one massive megachurch, let's focus on planting churches. And so we kind of went backwards on that because we were so exhausted. Because when you get to that level of weariness, you just start making decisions based upon what you can deal with. Um, we've talked a lot about that as elders recently, of the danger of making decisions for the church out of a state of weariness. Um, so all that to say, fast forward now. We're almost 14 years old. And the church that sits in front of me today is a totally different church than it was in 2009 and 10. In fact, I just had a curiosity. How many here in this room were here in 2009? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven people. Isn't that amazing? Tim Keller once said that a church by the time it's 10 years old will have 95% of the people that originally started the church will no longer be there. It's kind of people that tend to like church plants like the newness of church plants. <laughs> and, uh, and, and we live in an age now where, you know, our grandparents, they went to church and they stayed at that church whether the preacher was good or not because they didn't have celebrity preachers. You just stayed faithful to the community and you're... you're, you're your kids went there, and then their kids went there, and that's just how it went. But today, we love our options. We love to kind of fulfill that C.S. Lewis quote from Screwtape Letters, where the, where the older demon tells the younger demon, make sure your guy doesn't settle into a community. Keep him a church connoisseur. If he stays a church connoisseur, he'll never actually get engaged in a way that he'll become effective for the kingdom of our enemy, says the older demon. And we have this, COVID was the great, you know, this is the option, this is the, the opt-out moment. And it was an opt-out moment across the nation 
The sad thing is, is that people said, I'm going to leave my church and go find a new one. And a lot of them didn't go find a new one. They just left. So I come to last year, and it's the end of COVID, and I'm, and I'm burnt out. And, and honestly, I don't want to be a pastor. And I dream daily of what it would be like to just be a normal dude that loves Jesus. And hence, the elder said, Josh, you're going on a sabbatical. <laughs> and, and a lot of people didn't think I was going to come back. And honestly, I wasn't sure if I was going to either. But God has an incredible way of taking the dissonant notes of our lives, the mistakes we make, and, and as well as the successes, and he has an ability to weave all of it into his, his redemptive story. And as I've been back from COVID, it's been this constant wrestling match of like, what is, what is happening right now? And I had the Lord ask me something very specific about a month ago at the beginning of the Psalm 119 study. And it's been, it's shaken me to the core. And the question that the Lord put on me, and it was another moment where it was like a supernatural question. He said, when did you stop believing in the vision I gave you? Because honestly, I'm like, I want to be in ministry. I just don't want to do ministry in Portland anymore because I don't like the city any longer. It's not the city that I fell in love with. It's not the city that I, that I once dreamed of living and dying in. And the Lord's like, and your point is, once again, I ask you, Josh, when did you stop believing in the vision that I've given you? And this kind of put me into like a bit of a crisis and I began to pray really fervently, Lord, what is it that you are doing? Because honestly, a lot of people left the church in Portland. A lot of pastors left the church in Portland because it was difficult to watch. It's difficult to watch a church go from 1800 down. And listen, numbers, I don't even think 1800 is healthy for any church, honestly. But it doesn't mean it's easy to watch a church go to shrink. And right now we're growing again, but we're growing with a whole new community. And that's weird because then it's like, oh, this is a whole new church. What do we do? And I realized like, I've never been asked to police who's in the pew. I've been asked to be faithful to a vision that God gave me. And until he releases me from that vision, I'm called to be faithful to that vision. And I was brought to this verse, and I want to put this verse up, and then I'm going to just jump in, because I want to I deal with something that I think that the Lord isn't just doing in my life. I think he's doing it in many of your lives as well. And I think this is super important. There's a passage in Hebrews chapter 12 that I think defines what just happened during COVID. It's verse 25 and 29 says, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks, that's speaking of Jesus, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicates the removing of what can be shaken. That is created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with the reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. I've entitled this message Unshakable because I believe what God has been doing in my life is what he's doing in the church and what he's doing in many of your lives, which is he is shaking away the things that can be shaken till only that which is unshakable remains which is a life 
that is fully given to the beauty and the goodness of Jesus. A life that truly has the cross at the center. A life that says, my life is no longer my own. My life belongs to another. And you see, the church historically, remember what I gave right before Christmas? I gave a message around the financial state of the church. And I shared how serious it is. And what's fascinating to me is that when we were 1,800 people, we only had 250 people that gave monthly. And when we were, when we were a regular attendance of 500, 600 on Sunday, we still have 200 people giving regularly, which tells me that throughout the church's history, there have been many people without a solid foundation upon the reality of who Jesus is or the call upon our lives to surrender to him as Lord. People interested in in spirituality, people interested in marking off a box that says, I'm good with God because I went to church on Sunday, that, 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 kind of vision of I'm just going to go and see what it has to offer me, where self-preservation is still the continual focal point of those that are sitting in the pews. It's not surprising to me that when life got really difficult and, and they saw that the church was not there to just serve them, that they're like, I don't need any of this. I'm better off just doing my own thing. I'm better off doing my own thing. You see, the Lord has been shaking out of me my own desire for self-preservation. The Lord has reminded me that life is really short. All you have to do is look into your own father's eyes when he takes his last breath. And you know how short life is. I turned 50 years old in May. How did that happen? I feel like I'm in my 20s still. And I might even dress like it at times. But the fact is... I'm truly middle-aged. I'm not going to live to 100. There's no way. Please, God, protect me from 100. I don't want to be in Depends. I don't want to be taken care of. I don't want people to wash me. I just want to go out with a flame. Like, I want to just live for Jesus, and then he just takes me home. That's what I'm going for. I always say, like, when I was, remember interviewing John Mark um, Comer around his book on rest, and he was asking me about Sabbath. And I'm like, I'm like well, if you mean if I take days off, yes. But if you're asking me if, if, you know, if I'm concerned about the, the pace at which I live, it might end my life early. I'm like, that's kind of the goal, buddy. Like for me, I want to just go, go, like that guy made a dent, but it was real short. It's just like, he, like he, he went out at his prime, which is often many preachers throughout the church's history, unless you're John Wesley, who lived till he was 85 and still preached 12 messages a week. The fact is, is that God is doing a shaking and we've seen it firsthand in the church and Right now, we are at a crucial moment in American church history where the, the, the balances have turned against Christianity. It, it's definitely swung so hard that we are now moving, as everyone has always said, about 50 years behind Europe. We are, Portland is the first legitimately post-Christian city in the United States. And there are many others that I would say fall into that category now, many in the Northeast, I would say San Francisco. It's funny, LA is still weirdly like the Bible belt of, like, of the West Coast. Uh, but you know, you do have Hollywood to make up for it. But the fact is, is that there is a moving animosity toward Christianity, especially as American Christianity has aligned itself so fervently with politics, which is a complete misstep, in my opinion, from on the church's part. The church's responsibility is to be a witness. We don't get to pick enemies. Our enemy are the very people that we're called to love. It's just a fact. 
So what do we do with this shaking? Well, I think we can either pay attention to it because here's my point of today's message. And then I'm going to take you through five spirits that I think that God is shaking free, shaking the church free from right now, purging the church of, is that God is going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in his world. And he is going to save others with or without you. And the question is, is are you going to become like I've been, a reluctant prophet who just keeps getting spit up on the same shore, except for me, it's not Nineveh, it's Portland. And every time I try to get away, he just vomits me back up on the same shore. Um, and, and am I going to end the story like Jonah, where I'm just angry that God saved people because I didn't want to do what he asked me to do? See, the, the question for us is that we have to ask, what is God shaking us free from? Because, because we have the ability, and I just saw this in my, as I began to accept God's calling on my life and just like, Lord, I'm not happy fighting you. Oh, weird. <laughs> I'm not happy fighting you anymore. So what is it that you're trying to purge me of? And what is it that I'm running from? And how do I realign myself with that first love? Remember what it was like when you first fell in love with me, Josh. Isn't that what he asked the church of Ephesus? Remember what it was like when you first fell in love with me? Repent, repeat. Remember, repent, and repeat. Those are the realities of what he's calling us to. God's going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. So the question is, is do we want to be conduits, joyful conduits of that magnificent work? Because I promise you, there is no better candidate for a revival than Portland, Oregon. Because God will always choose the, thing, the places that seem like the last place on earth where the Spirit of God would move, amongst the last people on earth. That's why the Jesus movement was so magnificent, because God chose hippies, which the church were completely baffled by and, and had completely written off as a lost generation. And God chose that group of long-haired, unbathed, drug-using, free-loving community. And some of you were those people, and I'd love to see the pictures. Um, <laughs> Because we're now multi-generational. We used to be all 18 to 22-year-olds, and Darcy and I were the oldest people. But that's not the case anymore. But God did a radical movement in a place like, a, a place like L.A., in Orange County. How crazy is that? That God did this radical move amongst a bunch of hippies. And he used a guy like Lonnie Frisbee, a preacher who in, uh, ended up ultimately dying of AIDS, whose life was a... a an absolute mixture who got saved on an acid trip at Joshua Tree, and yet God used him to save hundreds and hundreds of people, bringing in the kingdom, because God chooses the foolish things of the wise to confound the wise, chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, and Door of Hope is a perfect candidate for a foolish conduit to become the conduit of God's radical love to a city like Portland. I believe that with all of my heart. So here are the spirits that I think we can have that God is trying to shake the church free from. And I want to begin with this one. The carnality of Esau. The Bible is given to us filled with stories of actual people who lived. And those lives are mixture, always mixture. And, and we forget that those stories of mixture, the, the brutality of the, of the, of the stories, the, the, the 
everything from incest to murder to covetousness, all of these things, even amongst God's own people, um, are there to not make us feel good about our own carnality, but to give us wisdom to know this is what will happen. This is why the Old Testament is so wonderful for archetypes. There are archetypes. Jung was right on with this whole idea of archetypes that play out over and over and over again throughout human history. And Esau is an archetype of humanity, and it's an archetype that plays out in the church and does great damage. And I believe God wants to free the church from this spirit, to shake it free. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 12, verse 15 through 17. It says, see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. I think if I was to be more, even more robust, I would add Jacob into the story because the carnality of Esau is matched by the deception of Jacob. Um, and there are many spirits <laughs> that I think God needs to shake out of the church. But when I say carnality, I am talking about allowing your life to be driven by your desires rather than that singular desire of Jesus. In, in other words, allowing the natural desires of the human heart to override the singular call to put Jesus first. This is why it's not wrong to want food. It's not wrong to want intimacy. It's, the problem is, is that carnality is us taking into our own hands, playing our own God, and defining when and where we will take those things and how it is that we will satisfy them. Carnality is the driving force of modernity. Everything in our culture is meant to feed the appetites. Sigmund Freud set loose Pandora's box and it, nobody has been able to close that lid. Nobody. That the only way we can free ourselves from the guilt and shame we feel is to actually eradicate all definitions of sin altogether. And yet that hasn't led us anywhere positive because we recognize that humanity needs boundaries in order to actually be free. <laughs> That's why true anarchy doesn't work because anarchy is this idea that to be truly free means there can be no law. But law sets parameters by which freedom can actually be experienced. And the moment you remove law is the moment that every person gets to define for themselves what is right and what is wrong. And by nature, somebody's desires will be violated. This is why, why socialism in its purest form, go back to Marxist ideologies and communist ideologies, it was a great idea on paper. The common brotherhood of man. But the fact is, is that every single country that embraced that ideology found itself ultimately leading to dictatorships because human beings it's, it's the removal of any sort of Christian grid leads to this belief that humans are essentially good. But time and time again has proven that people are essentially monsters. We're all monsters. Why don't we understand that? 
It's like my dad when I asked him if he knew if he believed in hell, and he goes, yeah, because I know so many people that should go there. And the moment I asked him what, what about himself, he goes, Joshua, I'm a good person. And I said, Dad, you, you abandoned me and Jared and chose a life of cocaine and, and alcohol instead of us. And he said, I am not going to apologize to you for the way that I raised you. And I said, well, Dad, I don't mean to be, you know, nitpicking here on the, the logic of your argument, but I would like to point out that you didn't raise me. <laughs> and he, he's like, he just goes, damn it, son. And he hung up on me. He actually, before he hung up, he said, when I call you, I want to feel good, not bad. <laughs> oh, the irony. I miss that man. I really do. I miss him. The carnality of the human heart is this, is that we often, we, we see the wrongs in others and in the world around us, but we, we often are unaware of it in ourselves. And here's one of the biggest problems I see today. Let me give you an example. I'm going to give you a, a real example that God's really checked my heart on. Um, and, and this is around um, the liberty that we have in Jesus. I tend to be more of a libertine spirit than a legalist. It's just my temperament. I'm a more is more person. I, I fully believe in the freedom that I have in Jesus. And sometimes I flaunt that freedom in a way that probably grieves the Holy Spirit. Here's the thing. What has become fully acceptable in the church today that was not acceptable 10 years ago in the American church, that is, was alcohol. The church was historically in America teetotalers because America has a horrible history with alcohol. I don't know if you guys have actually done much reading on the history of alcohol in the U.S., but alcohol actually has um, kind of like decade-long ebbs and flows. It goes into popularity and goes out of popularity, and it goes into popularity until it becomes a major problem societally, and then something happens, and it kind of falls out of popularity, and then it comes back in. We're in a, in a stage of popularity again. Uh, I didn't grow up in a, in a Christian home, but my, my parents didn't drink. My dad drank. And it's interesting to me. It just wasn't it wasn't like, it wasn't the thing where now in a city like Portland, I can't imagine getting together with people without there being alcohol as the centerpiece of what we gather around. Isn't that true? Isn't it interesting that if you look at blogs right now, the, the rise of, uh, there's a whole new fascinating among chefs actually in Portland because alcohol, alcoholism is so prevalent in the, in the food industry that there's this whole new movement of sobriety. Um, sober chefs, and I've noticed there's like, there's all these different like really fancy, super expensive like mixed drink replacements like Kin, and they have like eutropics in them. I don't even know what that is. I guess they make you feel good or feel like you're drinking. We, anything we can do to emulate that, that, that gentle joy of escaping the anxieties of life, or even if it's just for a moment, even though we might feel like garbage the next day, we will do whatever it takes to free ourselves from looking at things clearly, won't we? And I know I have. And alcohol has been a very, very complicated relationship for me. You know, I never drank before I started Door of Hope. Seriously, this church has almost turned me into the whiskey priest of <laughs> Graham Greene's novel, uh, The Power and the Glory. I'm like, oh my God, I think I'm that guy. Um, and I'm obviously being hyperbolic, and, and even if I'm not, I'm not gonna tell you. Um, I'm choosing right now 
a, a season of sobriety. I have been on this journey for a while. And the reason is, is because I know that I need resets regularly. I think it's often dangerous to say, I will never again do this thing because you set yourself up for failure. But what is, what is God asking you? I'm just using this as an example. I went to London and I'm in a room with some of the most influential pastors in the world. And I watched many of those people drink way too much. They were clearly, they were beyond buzzed. I love Chesterton's whole little essay on why being buzzed is godly and why being drunk is sinful. And that line is a very gray line, isn't it? Uh, of like Holy Spirit and a good buzz, that seems like a great thing, right? But how easy it is to cross that line. How many times have I driven home from a dinner where maybe I even had just two glasses of wine, but had I been pulled over, would I get a DUI? What would that do to the reputation of the church? All these things. I'm asking these things. And so the Lord's putting on my heart. He's like, this isn't something I'm putting on you. Like, you need to stop drinking. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, as society makes behavior normative, we fall into the trappings of groupthink. And groupthink is another way of allowing ourselves to feel okay with having, having practices in our lives that hinder Jesus' intimacy with us. And so, some of you... Maybe married, and you're regularly looking at porn, and you're like, but I'm not committing adultery. And yet, Jesus says that sexual pornea, which actually is the umbrella of anything that is sexually fueled outside of the confines of one man, one woman in marriage, is actually not permitted. We have all sorts of excuses, don't we? I'm going to marry her. I'm going to marry him, so it's not a big deal. Sexual immorality in the pews in this church throughout its history, I know, is grandiose. Because it was rare that I ever did pre-marriage with, premarital with anyone that wasn't already sleeping with the other person. Or at least engaged in pretty significantly sexual behavior. I love when they're like, no, we're not having sex, we're having oral sex. I'm sorry, I'm pretty sure the word sex is still in the sentence. Why do I have to define where things go and shouldn't go? It's just not my role. It's not my responsibility. But this is where the love of Christ should be compelling us. Does God not have a better plan? And as a guy who lived incredibly promiscuous, I can tell you that God's plan is the better, better plan. Sex is beautiful. Sex, outside, sex like a fire outside of a fireplace will burn your freaking house down. I watched a young woman at Door of Hope's beginning get saved at Door of Hope only to find herself pregnant after a one-night stand, and that pregnancy disrupted her life and threw her so off kilter that she left her baby with the guy that got her pregnant, moved to Alaska, only to come back in so much despair that she hung herself last year. And I'm saying, listen, Jesus' ways are meant to protect us. But carnality, you see, if it's groupthink, if everybody does it, it must be okay. Really? Is that really, is that really the wisdom of the world? It is. But is it wisdom? No, it's not. This is why Tozer was absolutely correct. He says, pay no attention to, to what the masses, what is popular. Pay no attention to fads, for the masses are always wrong. And it's true. I could go on and on, but the carnality spirit that God is shaking from the church is this question of what does it actually mean to be holy? Because being holy doesn't mean I don't do this and I don't do this and I don't do this. It's 
Being holy is about being singularly given to the love and the grace of Jesus in such a way that, Lord, I just, anything that would hinder me from knowing and loving you more, just help me get rid of. My carnality even fell into, I love to eat, I'm a comfort eater. <laughs> Definitely a comfort eater. I love the late night snack. It's a terrible thing. And right now I'm like, Lord, I love you. I want my love of you to be a motivation for being the healthiest self I can be. I have a long family history of mental illness. What am I doing that might be feeding into unhealthy ways of thinking and living? It's motivating me to look at every arena of my life and ask the question. This is why I see a therapist. This is why I just bought a squat rack for my basement, which is why I also have a cut on my eyeball because I thought it would be smart to angle grind the top of the squat rack without glasses. And this is why we aren't as smart as we think we are. <laughs> but it's these questions, what are the decisions we're doing today to just make ourselves be more healthy conduits for Jesus's movement in and through our lives. The carnality of Esau isn't the only issue though. And I just want to ask, I leave it with you. I'm not asking you to give up drink. I'm not, I'm, I'm saying, can you say in the ways that you spend your money and the ways that you spend your time and the, in the things that you put into your body, can you say that these things are serving Jesus or are they actually often methods of escaping him? That's what I want to ask you. Secondly, the pride of Peter. This is a spirit that I think has nearly ruined the American church. More so than anywhere else in the world. America is the one place where celebrity pastors truly uh, truly reign supreme, and pride often goes unchecked. You know, every once in a while, you get like the warning story of like Mars, the collapse of Mars Hill, which this church used to be Mars Hill, and it was all due to they claim the arrogance of, of Driscoll. Of course, anyone that watched him knew that that was an area of struggle. He commented on it constantly, but the fact is, is that often the people that came against him after he fell exuded just as much arrogance from the pulpit. And I think that pride in the pulpit is, is something that isn't just, isn't just I'm, I'm, a, um, I'm better than you, but it's the constant belief that I am always right. The inability to admit that you're wrong. Isn't it disturbing how many pastors never admit that they are wrong? It's probably equally as disturbing for you that I often admit how wrong I am. And... And you know, that's just, you're here though, so I'm gonna just trust that. John 13, 36 and 38, here is pride, the pride that can hurt a church so fast, and it's seen in Peter, and the good thing is God's grace is greater than any of these problems, by the way, and this is why he in his love shakes away that which can be shaken, to only that which is unshakable remains. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I have found myself in this very place and overconfidence in my own standing before God and unwillingness to see that 
though I am redeemed, I still live in a fallen world, in a fallen body, with a fallen mind, and I am prone to temptations like any other human being, and that everything I do is mixture. But when we stop seeing the mixture in ourselves, I promise you that is not a sign of maturity. That is a sign of stunted growth, and you are in a dangerous place, my friend. The moment you think you are not sinning literally every hour of every day of your life, you have a fundamental problem and a misunderstanding of who you are before Jesus. Your sin is never far from you. Your sin may be you sitting there right now saying, how dare he say that I sin every hour? And right there you prove my point. Because the cross of Christ puts everyone on the same playing field. Let me ask you a question. Here's how you know if pride is a problem in your life. Carnality is pretty easy because you're like, oh, I eat too much or I drink too much or I need to stop looking at this. It's very easy to point that out. That's what carnals, this is why carnal Christians were almost the, the, they're, the they're like, that's the, that's the bottom of the totem pole. It's like, it's so obvious that you're like, okay, I, I can't really hide this. Uh, it's, the, it's these, this is, I'm, I'm putting it in a list where it's actually more dangerous and difficult to describe. This is why Luther put all of his emphasis on the legalist. Because the legalists think they're right with God. The carnal person kind of knows that they're, they're taking a crapshoot with their salvation. Uh, the pride of Peter is something that, is, that I've seen firsthand. And here's how you know. Has someone ever confessed a sin to you and you were shocked? Shocked, like had a hard time not hiding the face of like, whoa, man, glad I'm not them. I think if you're shocked by other people's sin, it's a problem. Now, I'm not saying that we aren't called to hate what is evil. It's true. And there are things that will shock anybody, of course. But I have been around enough Christians to know the difference between shock as in I've never even heard of that before, And shocked as in, how could you? You know, like the really, really, like rigid, rule-keeping parent that you live as a child under the unwavering disappointment that you you are always doing something not quite right. It's not quite good enough. The proud Christian lives with that lens is that they see others as not where they ought to be, and they do not see the problem in themselves. In fact, they often establish themselves as gurus. It's often why they're the leaders, and that's often why it's the problem, because the leader should be the chief servant who recognizes the deep brokenness. It's so funny. Man, that parable of Jesus saying, remove the sliver from your own eye before you remove the, the bran- or remove the branch from your own eye before you remove the sliver from your brother's eye. Last night, Darcy and I were trying to remove the piece of metal from my eye. And it's literally, it was, she's like, honey, I don't even know if you'll be able to see it with a flashlight on it. She's like, it's the tiniest speck. And just for her to even touch it with a Q-tip, it was like, um, just imagine my eyeball being touched over and over again with a Q-tip. And, and, and our fingers, I'm like touching. And I'm like, I get this, I get his point now. You will deal very tenderly with people when you know how bad it hurts. A person who knows who they are in Jesus knows what they've been forgiven of. And a person who knows their own brokenness, their own sin, will tread very gently with others. 
That's a fact. Peter's belief that he would do anything, he was going to prove to them he would lay down his life for Jesus. Where did he end up? His pride led him to a place of the ultimate embarrassment, which is that he denied Jesus. He's like, I would never deny you. And he denied him three times. His ego meant that his self-preservation was his number one actual concern. And the pressure cooker of being tested, I'm going to get arrested if I identify with Jesus, all of a sudden revealed what his real God was. And it wasn't Jesus in that moment. It was his own flesh protecting his own hide. Now Jesus in his graciousness covered Peter. That's the whole reason he went to the cross. And I believe when Peter looked across the courtyard and saw Jesus look into his eyes, it wasn't the look of disappointment that Peter saw. It was the look of Jesus's unwavering love. This is exactly why I came, Peter, which is what broke him in the right direction. Judas repented in the wrong direction. Peter repented in the right direction. But just know that pride was a problem for Peter, not just here, in Acts as well. And we're told in Galatians, when he once again allowed the fear of man, because when our position becomes more important to us than our service of Jesus, it creates a fear of man, and a fear of man shows us actually how weak we are. That's why the proud person is truly a weak person. What about the legalism of Saul? I think these are interconnected. Acts 9, 1 through 5, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You know what's heartbreaking and so powerful about that story is that Saul truly believed he was serving God. And his service to God was keeping the Torah. And that Torah was more important to him than anything, and he was willing to kill. And I think that this is a spirit deeply connected with pride, which is a refusal to see sin in ourselves while at the same time uh, refusing grace for others. It's an it's a abuse of grace in ourselves and a refusal of grace toward others. And this legalism is where you think you're right with God because you don't do a, B, C, and D. I, I don't, I didn't sleep around. I don't swear. I do all things according to the very things that my church has taught me to do since I was a small boy, a small girl, and big freaking deal. Nobody's impressed. Because unless your obedience is flowing out of a right relationship with Jesus, your obedience actually has the ability to hide the lack of relationship with Jesus in such a way that you are in the most dangerous position of anyone in the Bible. This is what Jesus said. Many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this or that in your name? And he, said, and he does not deny that they did all kinds of things in his name. Signs, wonders. That's why I never, I never critique people who say that they saw signs and wonders. I'm never, I, don't, I don't doubt in the supernatural for a minute. I think the miraculous happens all the time. What I sometimes doubt is whether it's the spirit of God because we're told in scripture to test the spirit. 
And if it doesn't point people to Jesus, I don't care if you raise the dead. I'm not going to give that to God because Satan can counterfeit anything. The fact is, is that legalism is the belief that because of what I do, I am right with God. And I would say even legalists often even fall into the trappings of saying that they believe that they are saved because of what Jesus did for them, but they don't actually live in accordance with what they say they believe because everything in their behavior would lead one to believe that they are constantly constantly buying into the lie that what they do actually does, does change things when it comes to eternal destiny. And it doesn't. That's why Luther wrote to Melanchthon and said, you could, you could rape a woman every day of your life, commit adultery, murder, nothing you can do can ever change what Jesus has accomplished for you. And until you understand that, Melanchthon, you are going to be miserable in your attempts at proving your worth to God because he knows you're not worthy. Because you're no different than the murderer. You're no different than the adulterer. This is why I spent the time going through the kingdom of grace when they said that Jesus says, whoever looks at a woman lustfully commits adultery with her. What he is saying is that everybody is an adulterer. That's what he's saying. When he says that whoever's angry with his brother commits murder, he's saying everybody's a murderer. He is putting us all on the same playing field. The legalist does not like that. Because they'll say, but I did not commit adultery. I did not murder. And Jesus said, really? You were never mad at anybody ever? The fact is, is that this is the beauty of the gospel, is the gospel reduces our self-efforts to nothing so that we can put all of our hope in the everything that Jesus has already done. This is a spirit that we cannot afford to have if we want to reach a city like Portland. The legalistic church is a church that generally is closed off to the outside world. And I'm grateful that that is not the overall spirit of Door of Hope. But there is always somebody in every church that has this as the thing that needs to be shaken from them more than anything else. What about the despair of Elijah? These are the last two. 1 Kings 19, 9 and 11. And the word of the Lord came to him. Remember, I'll give you a backstory. Elijah had just had this victorious moment in which he had stood before the false gods of Jezebel. And, and, and God had consumed the false prophets. And, and Elijah seemed like an unstoppable force of absolute courage. But the moment Jezebel said, I'm going to kill you, it says he fled for his life in fear. And he goes and he hides out. And, and the Lord comes to him. I love, I love reluctant prophets. It makes me, makes me happy. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God. Now we see where, what's driving his fear. I have been very, I, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And you remember his thunder, lightning. God was not in those things. But then the still soft voice came to him. And what did that still soft voice say to him? There are still, Elijah, 7,000 who have not kneeled, bowed the knee to Baal. See, a pride is 
involved here. He thinks he's the only prophet. By the way, someone has asked me, what do I think about people giving you words from the Lord? And I'm like, I'm all for a word from the Lord. Um, I've gotten some weird words where I don't know what to make of it. It's like, whatever, I saw purple and an ocean behind you and a sea of people and it was awesome. I'm like, awesome, that's cool. I saw that once on acid as well. And then, and then I, have, I, have, I had a person come and give me, I also, I totally disc, I, I mean, I fully reject the idea that prophetic words must always be positive. There is a whole school of thought right now within Pentecostalism that prophetic words should always be positive. Listen, we're not self-help therapy sessions, okay? And that is definitely not the spirit of the prophets of Scripture. In fact, the most helpful word I was ever given was this exact verse when I felt like I was being overlooked, like I was the one that was more faithful to Jesus than the people I was working for, and I was bitter that I wasn't being used to teach more, and I didn't want to lead worship, and I was throwing a big tantrum, and this guy came up to me, and he was really nervous, and he goes, I don't, I've never done this before, but God gave me a verse for you, and I'm like, yeah, what is it? And he goes, it's 1 Kings chapter 19. I go, what's the verse? He says, there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not the only one. And I was just like, okay, Lord, Jesus, you win. You always do. (laughs) That, That was the reality. I was like, what a powerful, thank God someone gave me a prophetic word that was meant to bring me back to a place of humility, to humble me. And we will learn humility, just sometimes it's learned through the school of humiliation. But here's the thing that I want you to see in this spirit, because you may think, I'm not really, carnality's not what I'm struggling with, and I'm not really struggling with pride or legalism, but I feel a lot of despair when I think about being a Christian. And I think that's a really common spirit right now. I think people are overwhelmed by the news, and the news is a constant cycle of disturbances. You know what happened last night to my little girl? Hattie Starr is at a basketball game at Franklin High School, and what happens? A shooting in the building, or just outside the building. And Hattie was stuck at the school for hours. She didn't call us because she didn't want to scare us because the cops wouldn't let anyone leave. And then she gets home and she shows us the video, and Darcy just breaks down sobbing because the video the gunshots happen and you see all of these people in this, in this basketball, the basketball game stops and everyone's screaming and trying to get underneath, underneath the, um, the, the stands to hide from this shooter. It's so common. She just had a shooting at her school last month and she dated a guy who's lost two cousins in gang violence shootings in the last year. And this is just becoming more and more common and it's so common that it's the very thing that creates that I got to get out of Portland. This place is going to hell in a handbasket. And man, it's, it's true. You know, there, there's, a, there's a new little app thing. You know those like stupid little, like for Instagram, like where it, like it puts a face on you. I don't even know what they're called, but it's like, I just saw one, it just popped up in my feed and it was like, here's um, you drinking a cup of coffee and it puts a hand where it like, looks like it's you walking with a cup of coffee. And then it says, and stepping in human feces in Portland. This is Portland. It was like a total joke on Portland. This is, this is what Portland is now. This is what you're going to walk in. This is, we love our coffee, but we, we don't know how to deal with our problems. 
And that kind of reality can create despair. I bet many of you have had the spirit of despair. And this is a subtle one because despair actually robs Jesus of being able to use you to bring about good. Because yes, our hearts should be broken for the things that breaks God's, but it should not leave us hopeless. It should not push us into isolation where we think that the only way to follow God is to do it by myself. Because I think despair is what cleared the room, honestly, after COVID. And nobody's coming back. And this is why we have to remember, if they won't come to the table to eat, then you need to go to the highways and the byways. And you invite the least likely people to come to the table. Because God's going to continue to do his mission with or without us. Despair is not something that we can allow to rule our lives. We know the end of the story, and the end of the story is good. We also know that the story says it's going to be hard before it gets better. Finally, I close with the lovelessness of Jonah. And I'm sorry this is a long message, but I think it's important. This is the spirit that I think God has been shaking me of. And I confess this to you as your pastor and as a brother, as a part of this community, this is how we become free from the things that hurt us as we confess them. When we confess our sin, it becomes the very place where God meets us the most powerfully. When we hide our sins, it hides God from our presence. Jonah chapter three, verses 10 to four, three, and I close with this passage. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. Remember, Jonah had been swallowed, and I believe that he died. Uh, and that he was, that God brought him back to life. That's what I believe. Some don't even believe it's a real story. I don't, I don't care. I think that the, what matters is that the truth, that there's a scripture of God, I think it's a real story. I don't think there's any reason to not believe that. Um, and we're like, I don't know of any people being swallowed by whales. Exactly, not living. That's why I think he died. Um, and I don't know if it's a whale or a fish. I don't care about that either. Details, details. It's a crazy story. The power of the story is that God is a prophet of God and God gives him a command, go and share the gospel with Nineveh. And in the first, it says that, and he ran from the Lord. That's what it says in chapter one. He just ran from the Lord. And he gets on a ship to Tarshish and God brings a storm and everyone on the ship is freaked out and Jonah's down in the bottom of the ship sleeping and they wake him up and they said, who are you? And he's like, I'm a Hebrew. Um, I worship worship the creator of, of the sea and the land. I worship the creator God, and they are freaked out. And they're like, what have you done to us? And he goes, I'm running from God. And he said, the only thing that you can do is throw me overboard. And they're so freaked out because they see that he's a man of God. They're like, we will do anything but throw you overboard because we don't want even more guilt upon our lives. You know what's fascinating? God utilizes the rebellion of Jonah to bring salvation, I believe, to that crew which is a fascinating way of God redeeming the story because it says that they, they immediately worshiped the true God after they threw Jonah off the boat. And, and it says, and God caused a fish, a large fish, to swallow Jonah in which he spent three nights. And remember what Jesus said? I will give one sign to a, a wicked and rebellious generation, the sign of Jonah. Three, three nights I will spend in the, in the depths of Sheol, resurrection, death and resurrection. And Jonah spit up. It says the fish vomited him back up onto the shore. And this is my story, guys. Every time I have tried to jump ship from Door of Hope, God swallows me up 
and he freaking vomits me back out at the step. And then I have to come back and say, I'm sorry, guys, I've tried to leave again. I'm like, sorry, I'm, this time I'm really here. Um, and, and I'm kind of doing that again. Uh, but here's the thing, what I'm, what I'm really telling you is this, is that God uses Jonah to accomplish exactly what he wants to accomplish, which is bring salvation to Nineveh. This part of the story is what breaks my heart, and I never even thought about it before. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them if they did not do it. So the whole city, it's one of the only passages in the Bible, I mean, really in world history where an entire city repents. Entire city repents. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Here was the problem with Jonah. He wasn't afraid of what God was asking him to do. He was actually afraid that the thing that God asked him to do would come to, tr- come to fruition because he didn't like the people that God was asking him to love. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not... That what I said when I was yet in my country, that that is why I made haste to flee. For I knew that you were gracious, God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Essentially what he's saying is, I'd rather die than watch you save my enemy. Some of you view Portland as hostile territory to your particular worldview. And it's very difficult for you to love the people of this city because you think it's crazy. I mean, people say that all the time. How do you pastor in Portland? What a crazy place. I'm like, it is crazy, but it's crazy everywhere because people are people. They're broken and then they're in need of grace. And I think I didn't try to run away from Dwarf Oak because I didn't have love for people. But I definitely had the reluctant prophet piece where I didn't like the responsibility any longer. And I want to be free from this. And what God showed me in the last few weeks is this, friends. Josh, I'm going to accomplish through you what I want to accomplish. But are you going to end the story bitter with me still accomplishing what I'm going to accomplish? Or are you going to rejoice and celebrate the fact that I'm using you at all? I think one of the great questions that we must all ask ourselves is, what does it matter what God does with our lives or how much he accomplishes? Why shouldn't shouldn't we just be grateful that he uses us at all? Because I often get caught up in, I wish I, 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 the reason I shouldn't be your pastor is because I should have went to seminary or I should have got a college education, or I should be more mentally stable, or I should be more organized, or I should do all these things. And I, and I, start, I start basically saying that God got it wrong. Jesus, you got it wrong. And the spirit of, of this, the problem is that self-doubt, self-hatred is just as bad as, as pride and ego because self is still the fundamental focus. And the more that Jesus frees me from myself, the more I'm able to enjoy and love the light. I just lately, I've just been, I get up and I'm like, I love where I live. I love my wife. She's still hot and she's amazing and she's way smarter than me and she's still with me. Wow, we've been married for 25 years. I love my kids. I love this church building. I love this community. I love the staff. I love the city and I hate the city. But listen, here's the thing. The city is always a picture of Babel. A city is always a picture of what man can do without God. That is why God sends his children into cities to save people 
from that false reality. But he can't utilize us the way he wants to use us if he doesn't shake free from our lives those spiritual strongholds that hinder our ability of being the conduits of grace that he has called us to be. Remember what Jesus said to the church of Laodicea. He said this, and I love this. He said, Revelation 3, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write these words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, vomit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich and I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Notice, Jesus doesn't beat him down. He says, I have everything you need. You're just looking to the wrong thing for it. And he closes with the most powerful passage used by more evangelists than any passage in the Bible. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Remember guys, the goal of the Christian life is not arriving, it's knowing Jesus. What does he wanna shake free from you that's hindering you from knowing him this year? Because I believe in the dream that God gave me. I believe he wants to bring revival and I believe he wants to use Door of Hope to be one of hopefully many churches that are a part of a great move of God. But may God shake free from us the things that hinder our ability of participating in that great work. Amen. Hey friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroftopdx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.